2: Hey there, it's Rachel Mullins, the host of Hashtag No Filter Fridays on Public House Media.
0: Disarming disability. Okay, so here we are. Welcome back. This is our first episode of the season. We're really excited that you're here. Um, and so, yeah, we've got really awesome experts for this chapter. Uh, but let's also address the reality of the world that we're living in right now. Um, so COVID-19 is real. Um, I know that all of us are sort of, um, re- and we're sort of in the thick of it. We've been in this for, for what, two months, maybe like a month and a half now at this point, sort of around there. Um, definitely too long, but also sort of like not long enough. Um, but I know all of our lives are completely disrupted.
2: What has your life looked like? Um, what is, what has COVID done in your world?
0: Um, in my world personally, everything, um, has stopped. So I, um, took a leave from the airline. So I will not be working for American Airlines for the next, um, year. Uh, I come back in 2021, um, sort of depending on what life looks like. Um, when... Things were really sort of coming out in early March. Um, It was really sort of startling to see that flight loads were, you know, maxed out. Like, this is airplanes that I work typically hold like 187 people, right? That's like an Airbus 321, it holds maybe about that many people. We have a couple of different configurations. Um, but then to just watch how the numbers were dropping hour by hour, like I would be able to sort of track my flights. And um, a flight that I was supposed to work, but then for whatever reasons didn't work it, went out with like 20 people on it. Um, and that's nothing I've ever seen in my lifetime. I know a lot of flight attendants sort of speak that this is the world that sort of existed in um, post 9-11. So just as the COVID was beginning and they were starting to offer these leaves because routes were like canceling, people were, um, you know, not filling those seats uh, and trying to reschedule or get money back. um, I was like, okay, like this could really be a good space for me um, to get an occupational therapy job since I just graduated. I just got my license on March 3rd. um, So I was really excited to be able to practice OT. So I was like, okay, I think I'll be fine because I have another job that I can go to where that may necessarily, maybe not the same story that every um, other flight attendant has, right? So, um, and then just as that switch happened, um, things got pretty ramped up with COVID and then everything's frozen, right? So there's no, I applied to all seven occupational therapy jobs in the greater Philadelphia area. (laughs) Um, So maybe I'll get one, I don't know. Um, So everything is just kind of, frozen um. I also, just before COVID had started, um, I had abstract ex- abstracts ex- uh, uh, accepted to be um, presenting at different conferences um, around aerial arts and disability and limb differences. Um, I had um, different presentations. I had, I was, we had a workshop that we were going to do, like, and some of these things started being paid. So it just like was really exciting for my own life to be like, okay, like this sort of alternative lifestyle in, in advocacy and speaking and presenting and, and sort of continuing research uh was really starting to get amped up um i was going to do a performance with aaron ball in um, guadalajara for the aerial arts which is like super excited and again these being like um paid things and then sort of covid has just canceled my life so i'm in sort of this like funky space where i am applying for unemployment and um and sort of like, okay, so I'm this like flight attendant with a graduate degree that's unemployed. Um, was like, okay, Sarah, like great life decisions you did. So that is me, unemployed flight attendant with the graduate degree. Hey <laughs> it's
2: Not I, I feel you and it's not just you. I mean, in my company, I initially also was furloughed. and so I also was a unemployed. Person with a graduate degree. Um, my company just they got the small business loan that the government is offering. So now I've been trying to figure out how to get off unemployment, which by the way, is just as hard as trying to get on unemployment. Uh, but it's it, I, I'm just hoping that the good the good that will come out of the that this this craziness that we're in right now are the things exactly like what we're talking about, where, you know, we can, working from home can be more normal if that's an accommodation that somebody needs. But yeah, I'm, I'm really excited now to jump into today's guest. We actually, this guest reached out, his team, I guess, reached out to us and we totally freaked out when they reached out to us because this person, um, Jay Ruderman is our guest today. And Jay runs a family foundation called the Ruderman Foundation. And they do so much amazing activism within the disability space and just to have the chance to be able to pick the brain of somebody who has um not only the resources of money but also the resources of people and of influence um to talk to talk about the ways and the thought process of how you go through that and what you do was so cool and he just was i mean as you'll hear he's just the most intelligent guy who totally, totally gets it right he gets disability he gets where the gaps are and he is actively working to fill these gaps um yeah so we are just so honored and so excited to jump into this interview and have you join uh, the amazing conversation we had with expert jay rudeman Jay Ruderman is the president of the Ruderman Family Foundation, which focuses on the inclusion of people with disabilities worldwide and educating Israeli leaders on the American Jewish community. Jay graduated from Boston University with honors and received his JD from Boston University School of Law. He lives in Boston with his wife and their four children. For Jay's full bio, please check out our website at disarmingdisability.com. Welcome Jay, Um, we talked about it a little bit before, but can you give us a little taste of what Boston is like during this uh, pandemic time?
1: Yeah, so Boston is an epicenter of COVID-19. There's a lot of cases here. I mean, we're not in the situation of New York, but uh, we are in the midst of the surge. Um, People are locked down. We just got a notice from the, the Commonwealth that we're locked down until Pretty much the end of May, Um, our kids are out of school for the rest of the year. Um, You know, it's a serious situation, but people still go about their lives. Um, Most people are working from home, those that can work from home. But of course, you know, we rely on our first responders, our doctors, our nurses, um, police officers and so forth, and the people who are uh, in our supermarkets. So there's a lot of people that can't work from home. Um, but, you know, we're trying to stay safe, and, and you know, people, most people I see out in the, out in, and about walking around are following precautions, wearing masks, and keeping uh, social distancing. So um, we're sort of in the midst of it.
2: Yeah, that's how it feels here in Chicago, too. I just, it's been strange in a matter of weeks that, you know, one time a week I go grocery shopping. The first time it was shocking to see someone in a mask. And now here, just two or three weeks later, it's shocking to see someone without a mask. And that's just been such a strange turn. Um, But we're all in this together. And uh, I'm glad that you are um, staying safe and that it sounds like everyone is well. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So let's hop right in. I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of of history on on you. Um, What does your career looked like, and how have you come to the place that you're in today?
1: Well, I'm a Bostonian. I grew up here, went to college um, at local school at Brandeis University, and I went to Boston University Law School. Um, I used to be an assistant district attorney, but I've always been involved in politics and activism, and I've always believed in um activism as a way to change society and when i took over running the foundation foundation's about two decades old uh but i've been involved for about um 10 or 12 years and um i sort of took it from a philanthropic organization which we still are um into a a combination of a philanthropic organization but also we do a lot of advocacy and our advocacy started by um, responding to stories of uh, celebrities and politicians, um, uh, films and movies in which people with disabilities were portrayed or, or uh, you know, spoken about in derogatory terms, to actually putting out um, over a dozen white papers dealing with a lot of different subjects on disability. Um, And we're still very outspoken. I mean, I think one of the things, you know, Family Foundation, uh, for those that aren't familiar, is um, the government allows um, families to put a certain amount of wealth aside and to distribute that for um, the public benefit to public charities. Um, But we have a great deal of latitude. And I, one of the things that I think allows us to be really good in advocacy is we don't have a lot of bureaucracy, so we can respond within a matter of hours. Um, And we work a lot with the media, uh, social media, but also traditional media
0: that's fantastic. I really, um, when I was looking through the the Ruderman Family Foundation website, I came across those white papers. Um, and I know that Nikki and I spoke, um, we had Lawrence Carter Long on our podcast the first season that spoke specifically about this study that was conducted researching films from 2007 to 2015. And um, so I kept thinking like, okay, so what's happening now? Like what growth has happened between 2015 to 2020? So when I came across those white papers, I was like, wow, this is one that's coming out every year that's looking at, you know, how has things changed within our TV shows and things like that. So I got really excited because it really is. So thank you for, for continuing on that research because it is really important to see who is still not being represented.
1: Right. And Lawrence is great. He and David Perry actually wrote our first white paper, uh, which was on police brutality and that um, half of the uh, people that are uh, killed by police officers have a disability and often that disability is not portrayed in the media as part of the of the conversation.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: regarding Hollywood, um, we've done three white papers. We've been extremely involved in Hollywood for the past few years, actually until COVID-19 hit um, about authentic representation of people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And our first white paper, which was done, um, uh, one of the authors is Danny Woodburn, who is a little person and probably best known for a recurring role on Seinfeld, but he's been in many movies and TV shows. Um, but the, the first white paper said that 95% of the people that you see on TV on the leading shows are played by able-bodied characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, ha- there has been some progress. I mean, we've been very outspoken about films in which um, disabilities portrayed by able-bodied actors and, um, And, you know, you think about, like, why this is important. Well, stigma is prevalent in our society. And before COVID-19 hit, you know, we had the lowest unemployment in the history of the United States. We had about under 4% unemployment. Um, But people with disabilities were still unemployed at the rate of 70%. And a lot of that has to do with stigma. The thing about TV and film, you know, Michelle Obama once said that most of us get to know people who are not like ourselves because we see them in TV um, and film. And so the more you have authentic uh, portrayal of people with disabilities in in film and TV, the more they become part of our lives and more normalized. And I also realized um, a generational uh, thing happening where younger people who uh, may have gone to school with people with disabilities are more used to it and it's like not a big deal to have diversity in their society, whereas older generations are more... Um, you know, I I guess they would say not as comfortable with it. Um, And when we've really dug in and dealt with a lot of the studios, I think there is a perception that uh, people with disabilities can't really uh, authentically portray disability. But, you know, we used to have that attitude with African Americans, uh, Hispanic uh, and American Indians, and that has really changed very quickly in Hollywood. So you know we've worked with the Oscars, we've worked with the Sundance Film you know Institute, um, some of the leading actors and studios but we've made you know a great deal of progress but there's still a lot of progress to be made
0: mm-hmm. I um, on a silly sort of tangential note. This weekend, I happened to watch the Lady Gaga documentary. um, And there's this moment in there where she talks about creating this album, Joanne, that came out. And that Joanne is sort of a tribute to her um, aunt, who was 19 and sort of had lupus. And there's this moment in there where um, Lady Gaga is talking to her grandmother, sort of learning more about Joanne's story. And her grandmother was like, you know, she had lupus and um, the doctor said that we needed to amputate her hands, Joanne's hands, um, and the grandmother said something along the lines of like well she's an artist and I can't take her hands away and sort of ultimately then um, Joanne passed sort of those complications with lupus it's you know not sure whether or not the hands had they been amputated would she be saved it doesn't know it's irrelevant and and just knowing that that's a very real thing um, and that this sort of sort of following that narrative of that you know this person with a, a disability that's a life unwanted to live um, and that if we're not portraying them correctly in our medias then then we're sort sort of supporting all of these stigmas that exist. Um, and just like how hard that hit me because I have friends who have hands that have been amputated as a result of lupus and and knowing that these are really real themes and concepts and, and just wanting to make sure that that really fuels the work that both I and Nikki and I think that we all want to do is to help create a better world where people can feel that they can still exist on this planet regardless of what their bodies look like or function like.
1: So what, what I've experienced with... Um... You know, people that we work with, whether they be athletes or whether they be models or uh, actors, is that there's a lot of pride in, in disability these days. And there's uh, people are not staying silent. I mean, a lot of that has to do with social media and speaking out and, and you know, uh, working with other people and, 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 you know, raising the voice. But I think that the disability activism is being heard. I, I know that it's being heard in Hollywood. I know that, that you know, for a long time when you would talk about dis- diversity in Hollywood, you'd talk about um, you know, race, you would talk about um, sexual orientation or sex, but, but I think disability is now becoming part of the conversation. I mean, Hollywood is a very complex place with a lot of different players, and there are some real strong advocates and some that are not so much but I, I think that you know society in general is making a great deal of progress. Um, one thing I would say about the disability community is that you know, if the disability community was united, um, it's about twenty percent of the population, and it would be the largest minority group in the world, and probably the most powerful minority group in the world. One of the drawbacks in the disability community is that we tend to um, group ourselves according to disability like you know i deal with anxiety or someone else deals with depression or an amputation or uh cerebral palsy or or down syndrome or autism or whatever and the community has a hard time banding together and so we've never defined disability as an organization Uh, and one of the reasons that we've never defined disability is because we believe that the the community is much more powerful when we're united.
2: I love that. And you're hitting on something that Sarah and I have spent a lot of time heartaching about. And, and it's interesting because a lot of people, you know, Sarah and I, of course are, are amputees specifically. So we are very involved specifically in like what you just said, the amputee community. And there is a. a an extreme divide between people who are just, yes, I'm an amputee and I'm proud only to be amputee versus I've crossed this bridge into disability pride. And I'm a part of this larger community and larger group. And, and it's really fighting all of this word stigma that we keep coming back to. There's so much stigma around that word that to get people kind of cross into this idea that you're a part of this larger community, um, is really challenging. Uh, but slowly, I think we're starting to really have those conversations and pull people over the bridge, hopefully anyway. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, you you know, we're talking about white papers, we're talking about gathering data. And I'm wondering just generally, if you could talk about why that, that kind of data collection, why is that important? And why why should we be writing these things and collecting this data?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to, you know, just to step back for a second, because, you know, when you talk about the, the disability community not really being united, I think that a lot of that has to do with organizations, organizations that are set up for specific disability and fund from that community. But I, I'll give a shout out to a movie that premiered when we were a sponsor of um, the Sundance Film Festival, which is one of the more um, prestigious independent film festivals. And they debuted on opening night a film called Crip Camp, which I don't know if you've seen, but um, you go back into the 70s where um, people with all sorts of different disabilities were going to um, this camp. And what grew out of that as they stayed in contact through the years is they really became the leaders of the disability rights movement and you're talking about people with very varying disabilities so i mean i think it's possible i think it's i think it's you know i think when the when the community when the individuals rise above the organizations i think you know that's when that will happen um i think data is very important when it sort of shows the community by shocking the community of like, this is what uh, the situation is, or it provides the community incentive to to um, act differently. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of our most quoted white papers has to do with um, first responders, police, fire, EMTs. And the takeaway from that was that, um, more police and firefighters die by suicide in the line than in the line of duty. now unfortunately in America every single week a policeman or a fireman commits suicide and so you know that's a data point that sort of shocks people it don't does, it, it only shocks the community and why is that you know so prevalent because there's a tremendous amount of stigma that if you're a firefighter or a police officer and you come out and you say listen you know'm I'm, I'm depressed and I'm having, you know, suicidal thoughts, they're going to take away your weapon, they're going to suspend your job, you may not get that job back. Um, But by reducing the stigma, and we've not only, um, you know, produced the data, but, you know, worked with New York City Police Department, Boston Police Department, and, you know, been in contact with police departments from all over the country, that starts to change attitudes, that starts, you know, police chiefs saying, okay, I'm going to get my officers, the help they need, and I'm not going to fire them because they're having, you know, um, these feelings, um, you know, getting back to, to Hollywood, you know, we started to do a number of white papers saying, listen, this is how bad you are. You know, 95% of the roles that you show playing disability are not played by, by disability. And, um, you know, we did a number of white papers and criticism of movies in that, in that vein, and then we turned around and produced a white paper, you know, that that we commissioned um, a, a research firm to look into that did some polling. And and what it showed is that most Americans would prefer to see authentic representation of disability in film and TV. And it showed the studios how much money they would make by doing that. So, you know, that's another way of saying, listen, you know, it's not only the, the stick, but here's the carrot. Here's m- how much money you can make by sort of you know, changing. And and by the way, you know, you wouldn't go see a film today where you'd see an African-American played by someone who wasn't an African-American or American Indian played someone that's not an American Indian, but you used to typically see shows like that and see characters like that. So I think that in time, whether it's in five years or 10 years or 20 years, you will see people with disabilities playing disability on film. Um, It really takes not only a change in society and and for the public to say, this is what I want to see, but also take some leadership in the people that are making the films. And there are leaders out there. There are people like John Krasinski, who made A Quiet Place, who wanted his daughter played um, by someone who was deaf. It was a deaf character. Millicent Simmons played it. Um, A show like um, Edgar Wright, who's a director who produced Baby Driver Uh, in which he wanted the father uh, to be played by a deaf character, C.J. Jones. So there are those leaders in the disability community. We just honored, uh, we do an honor every year in my dad's memory. We give out $100,000 to an individual who's really um, been an advocate for disability rights. So we've we've given it out to um, Marley Matlin, who was the first Um, actress to win an Oscar for playing a disability. She herself is deaf. Um, Senator Tom Harkin, who was one of the authors of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, uh, And this year we gave it out to the Farley brothers who are uh, directors and have done comedies like uh, Dumb and Dumber, Something About Mary, um, Shallow Hal. And they really have made an effort to put, um, people with disabilities in their films and so it was like the last event before COVID-19 in March that we put an event together in LA but you had people you know like Larry David and Ted Danson and you know major stars you know come out um, and people from the studios so it's starting to have you know a ripple effect. I just think it's going to take a little bit longer.
2: I so two things. First of all, Sarah and I, of course, have absolutely watched Crip Camp and we've joined some of the like post webinars conversations that have happened and it made both of us cry multiple times like it just we are so proud and thankful. Thankful that that footage was saved and collected, and then actually made into something that our generation and the generations that come can actually watch and like feel directly connected to that pride and to like see how much of a badass Judy is. <laughs> um, so yes, so we are all about that. Um, and I think, I think the other thing that I want to say also as a comment, not a question but just how excited it gets for me to, to hear, um, how, how methodically and thoughtfully the foundation actually approaches these topics and the care that it gives in, in doing the research in finding the right people and connecting into the community and doing, um, and doing things in a smart and right way. So thank you is the comment that I have to say.
1: But Well, thank you for that. But I'd also say, you know, we have very little to lose. So first of all, as a foundation, we're not raising money. So Mm -hmm. I don't have to be uh, concerned that I'm going to say the wrong thing or put out a press release and people are going to get upset because I don't have that constituency. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing in terms of, you know, Hollywood or or any other community where we're critical, um, you know, we don't have anything to lose in that community you know There's a lot of people who are activists but they're working actors and and Mm -hmm. they don't want to be blackballed by by the community so we're able to really you know speak out in in those terms um and and we're we're always trying to be as inclusive as possible so you know any actor um with or without a disability that wants to join our cause I mean we've been very um open and You know, we have an open letter to the studios that we've had. You know, most of the major stars sign calling for authentic representation of disability. Uh, But we've we've worked in so many different fields. I know we're talking a lot about Hollywood right now, but you know, many different fields. Um, And the other thing I would just like to say is that just so that your audience understands, you know, what is a foundation? A foundation is, especially a, a family foundation, is a family that's decided to give away funds and they work on an issue. Our issue happens to be disability rights. We take a very progressive view of disability rights. So um, we're looking to promote the people working in the community, living in the community, uh, being full members of of the community. We're we're not people that support uh, institutionalization or segregation or sheltered workshops. you know, but the other thing is that, you know, we are a family. Now, some of us may have disabilities. Uh, certainly, members of our staff have disabilities, and our advisory council are made up of people with disabilities. But I, I'm very cognizant of the fact. So, several years ago, um, we founded a group called Link Twenty. Mm-hmm. Link Twenty is a group of activists. Um, you know, it started in Israel. We have an office in Israel, but it expanded to the United States. of um, activists with and without disabilities. And um, they, you know, what we're trying to do is provide resources to help them become better activists. So provide the training. Um, we do a graduate program at MIT for people with disabilities on social activism. Um, but they've had some real strong wins that, that, you know, weren't our wins. They were the wins of of Link 20. And, and again, why Link 20? 20% of the population has a disability. You know, We're linking them together with general society. Um, but for example, baseball for over 100 years, Major League Baseball, had the term the disabled list. And so mm-hmm. they wrote to Major League Baseball saying, this term is offensive to us. We are people with disabilities. And automatically, baseball changed the term to the injured list. Um, you know, and you're talking about a sport that more Americans watch than any other sport. Um, They had um, some of our activists in Link 20 are Paralympians, and you did not have equal pay for um, winning medals for Olympians and Paralympians. And so they petitioned the U.S. Olympic Committee, and finally they won. So the Paralympians are now paid Uh, in parity with Olympians. So they've had some great, you know, wins. They've challenged airports on being more accessible for people with disabilities. So I think that that's a win. And by the way, you know, as we go away as a foundation in however long, you know, that may be, um, we want to be able to help others become, you know, better activists. Mm -hmm. And Some people don't need Judy Human is someone that I've known for a long time. I think Judy was born an activist, and (laughs) and, you know to be an activist. Um, But some people need to be, you know, given the resources to become better activists. And you know, I think that that's a big uh, something I'm very proud of.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, can you share a little bit about? how how the Family Foundation kind of found the disability community and settled on on really working within this community?
1: So I think for us, it's sort of it happened by accident, but you know nothing in life is really by accident. So um, our first major grant was to improve the school system in Boston to make it accessible for um, children with disabilities and then, uh, when I was living in Israel, I had the ability to form a major partnership with the government of Israel um, to change policy in Israel to make it more um, inclusive for people with disabilities. And then I guess I decided to to um, pursue this um, strategy of going narrower and deep and focusing on... Um, the issue of disability. And then as I met more people, you know, with disabilities and got, got further into the issue, I realized that, you know, there was an added value for us. It was an added value because I saw so many organizations focused on singular disabilities and for us to be a more broad-based, you know, organization. And then, you know, for me, the advocacy, I think, came before. And so that's that's an added value because most foundations... They may support advocacy by funding other organizations, but we sort of did it on our own. And I think that was because it sort of comes naturally to me. Um, And I saw this as a civil rights issue. I mean, I was always interested from a very young age and did my college thesis on the civil rights movement in the United States. And this is sort of one of the last civil rights movements. Um, And so... I think that that's really why we got very deeply, you know, involved in the issue. Um, and it continues to be something that's, you know, very satisfying because there's so many parts of society that needs to be changed.
2: So many left,
1: (laughs) you know, the other thing I would, I would just add to that is that, you know, all of us are connected to the issue. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, after we got involved, my nephew was born with autism. My dad developed a condition called alpha-1 antitrypsin where he generally lost his lung capacity and passed away and he, you know, became uh, disabled. And and there's something someone, I can't remember who said it to me, but, you know, all of us, if we live long, long enough, long enough may develop a disability. So it's the one minority group that we will all probably someday join
0: it is and also when we make things inclusive and welcoming for us or for people with disabilities and we make it accessible for all of us so it's like this this is good for all of us at any point in time too um, and and I really like that component um, I'm also thinking that so we talked about the white papers we talked about you um, the funding of different programs can can you speak a little bit more on um, other things that the foundation does in sort of partnerships with programs and sort of what that component looks like?
1: So I want to get back to like you know one thing you said about like um, benefits for people with disabilities benefit all of us so I remember being involved in in Israel where they were first putting in curb cuts and curb cuts were put in for you know for people in wheelchairs But, you know, I was living there with young children, you know, with bicycles and baby carriages. And so a lot of as we make society more accessible, um, you know, it does affect more than just the disability community. I mean, I I think we've always taken an approach in terms of our funding of um, this is our issue. This is what we would like to do and then approach the organizations that we want to work with that we think are impactful. Mm-hmm. So we've always taken the approach of we don't take unsolicited um, proposals. We go out and we look for the organizations that that we um, want to fund. And you know the, we've we've worked in housing um, you know to oppose institutionalization of segregated housing to independent living. We've worked on the issue of um, employment. And, you know, a lot of employment programs are focused on people with disabilities and getting them the job. But we were really focused on employers and changing attitudes of employers of hiring people with disabilities. Uh, Of course, education, you know, making education accessible to all and not segregated education. I mean, I, I can tell you in terms of philanthropy, you know, we have butted heads with other organizations and other philanthropists that still are in the mode of segregated housing. And I, I've always like as a parent, when I deal with other parents, I've always said, listen, I'm not your judge. You know, you can raise your children the way you want. You think a segregate, uh, often the argument for segregation is it's safer. You know, I'm afraid for my child and you know, they should be in segregated education, segregated housing. Um, You know I've always seen disability as part of the human condition and that you know a person with a disability just like anyone um, wants to have everything that that um, anyone else in society would have you know live in your own place with a with a person of your own choosing um, have a a job um, participate in the community you know, be able to access transportation. They're all sort of basic human needs that anyone would want. Um, So, yeah, I think that that's how we've approached uh, our philanthropy
0: just wonderful I wanted to speak on um, one of your programs when I was looking through the list of different organizations I saw that project bind was on there um, which is with the Boys and Girls Club of um, Dorchester and um, when I was in my occupational therapy program at Boston University my first semester um, we got assigned to um, a program where we did our like our level one field works is what it's called so we're sort of seeing what occupational therapy looks like in the field in the field um, and mine was at project bind so I spent a semester there with another Another student in my class and it was teaching an inclusive dance program. Um, so it was incorporating both people that had um, a disability and people and, and kids that did not have a disability into this like hip hop dance classroom. Um, and it was just really important because these were individuals that do sometimes spend part of their day segregated um, and and perhaps, so so it was just really important to have them both together. And so that everyone was learning these dance moves together and then also everyone was learning about each other, um, which is just like a really really beautiful and magical program. And then we got a dance party at the end with a pizza and it was just really lovely. So it made um, my heart really happy when I saw that that was a program that I um, had also contributed to for, you know, a tight part of my life.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, everything that we've supported throughout the years have been inclusive. I mean, we would, we would, um, and and we've told organizations, you know, we're not going to support, uh, programs that are just for people with disabilities. There has to be an inclusive element to that. And, you know, part of the going, you know, I, I guess you're looking to change the attitudes as much as the ch- children who are able-bodied, as the children you know who have disability, because, you know, what we found, like, I'll never forget, you know, we did this uh, program in in Jerusalem, and it just happened. It was in a, it was in a city square and I had gone into a store to buy something and the cashier said to me, she's like, you know, I I want you to know that I had a similar program. She was not someone with a disability, but she said, I had a similar program when I was young and it forever changed my attitude towards people with disabilities. And I think when you, especially when you work with younger people, um, and they're introduced to disability, it's, it's no big deal. It's not like, but, you know, most of us are afraid of the other. So the more that you have inclusion, um, the more that you break down these stereotypes. I mean, I can always tell when I walk into a meeting and there's a younger person there and I'm talking about this and they're nodding their head, an older person, you know, who just doesn't get it. But, you know, one of the things that um, Judy Human will talk to you about or, you know, someone who's really, you know, lived this experience is that. You know, people with disabilities used to be institutionalized and and, um, you know, we went from institutionalization to segregation to now, you know, full inclusion in the community. But there's still a lot of people who grew up with their brothers and their sisters and their cousins being institutionalized or segregated and not seeing them. In in fact, you know, one of the most famous cases is uh, President Kennedy's sister, Rosemary who um, had some form of an intellectual disability. Her father um, had a a lobotomy performed on her, and she was sent away to an institution in Wisconsin and was not seen for decades by the family until Eunice Shriver, who is Tim Shriver, Anthony Shriver's uh, mother, and she formed Special Olympics, and then they formed uh, Best Buddies. But, you know, the idea that this is my sister, and she deserves to be part of you know our our society. And people with disabilities deserve to be part of our society. And and even organizations that started out as somewhat segregationist, like we're going to help children with disabilities, have now completely transformed to be very inclusive organizations. So, you know, I I, I think the history plays a long a big part in how people see it.
2: Definitely. I want to um, be mindful of time and respectful to you, but uh, kind of before I ask the what's, what's next for Ruderman question, I am wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about um, what the foundation is thinking about and talking about and doing specifically in a time of COVID-19.
1: So what we did is a couple of what we called sort of immediate um, responses. So as I said, you know, we operate in Israel, we operate in the United States. In Israel, we work with the major public television to make their news broadcasts accessible for all people with disabilities. So whether it is giving the news in a very slow spoken manner or uh, with sign language or captions, at a time when a lot of people are going through a lot of fear, that was a way to reach all sectors of the population. Uh, in Boston, you know, we, we, I'm always interested in some sort of leadership aspect, some some sort of way of doing something that not everyone else is doing. So when, when COVID-19 hit, there was a lot of money put towards it, but not with a lot of direction. So we worked with Massachusetts General Hospital, which is one of the biggest um, hospitals in in the Boston area, to give them a grant for doctors, nurses, and medical personnel to get um, the help they need for mental health issues. Because, you know, we live this life and we're segregated, we're living in our houses and so forth in our apartments, um, and we're isolated. But so many people that we know are going to work every day. And they're in very stressful situations. In fact, we had a very sad case uh, a couple of days ago of a uh, doctor in Manhattan who went home and committed suicide because of the horror that she just couldn't deal with. Um, you know, the, some people, are, doctors and nurses, are living in the hospital, they're coming home, they're afraid of, of infecting their wives or partners or, or, or children. Um, So that was one thing that we did. We also gave a grant to the Boston Police Department uh, because they're also showing up to situations where, you know, potentially putting themselves um, at risk. And um, then our local community, we gave a grant for emergency response. Um, But then the other thing that we did, because I, you know, for me, I'm thinking in terms of advocacy, you know, what's the biggest issue out there and, and, and the what I saw as an issue is a person with a disability getting COVID-19, going to the hospital, if they have an intellectual disability or they're already in a compromised situation, the hospital discounting their life. So we reached out to some medical ethicists at University of Pennsylvania and produced a white paper, which basically called for um, a process of um, having a committee with representing the disability community, caretakers, um, nurses and doctors, to focus on and not discounting the lives of people with disabilities um, because of the situation that they're in before they arrive in the hospital. And, we, you know, there was some success. We spoke out. We weren't the only ones, but, you know, Alabama had um, some guidelines where um, they asked to uh, discount the lives of people with disabilities. We spoke out against that and they rescinded that, um, in Israel, they put out the health, uh, the, um, ministry of health put out a statement saying, you know, people with disabilities come third on the list. And, uh, we activated link 20 in Israel and they spoke out about that and that all that was also rescinded. But so I think that, um, this white paper has gotten some traction and will continue to get some traction, um, you know, I think that we're we're going to face some issues as we come out of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I th- I saw something today that half of the deaths in America have come out of nursing homes or segregated facilities. So maybe as a society, you know, we say these are not the best places to house people in compromised situations. And if they have to be, maybe we put the guidelines in place before that they're not Put at risk because that's really where we've seen a lot of a lot of deaths and and um you know we did we as in israel we've been active for many many years in moving people from segregated housing into their own apartments and not only is that probably what they want but it's also cheaper it's less expensive for the government to support them in in these situations than in segregated housing so maybe that's something that that will come out of this as as an initial um, phase. But I I don't I mean, I personally, I don't think we're going to pop out of this. I think that, you know, this is going to go on for a while. And there's going to be a lot of different ramifications that we just don't know about. And one thing as as a philanthropic organization is, I've never believed in putting everything and in, jumping into the the issue, you know, right away, you have to wait and see how it plays out, because things will happen that we don't even know will happen.
2: Mm-hmm. Agreed, but thank you so much already for, for the the work and the funds that have gone out specifically to support. Um, it's been interesting following the conversation online in the disability community, because there's been, of course, a ton of conversation around, around the conversation of where are we placed in an order, a pecking order, if it comes down to that. But then there's been a little bit of a, um, of a we told you so tone when it comes to specifically talking about a working from home setup, right? We were talking about earlier, the 70% unemployment within the disability community. And so much of that is the barrier of actually maybe physically getting to work or needing to be at home for whatever reason. And, and now we're experiencing that full on. So I'm hoping that that is a good twist that comes out of this, that, that work will be a little bit more, um, yeah, accessible to our our community here.
1: Yeah. I think that I mean, for us as an organization, since we moved, I think in early March um, to working from home and we're all over the country and all over the world, um, it hasn't slowed us down at all. I think, you know, we're still um, just as busy. And I'm on an organization called uh, the National Organization of Disability, which focuses on employment. And this is sort of making the case for them that you don't have to show up at a physical place in order to be productive. In fact, you know, when we were talking about the nursing homes, um, you know, I I read something just before coming on this podcast that if we all go and return to work, we're putting ourselves sort of in the same type of situation, being very close to each other. Um, And so maybe, you know, we go on for a while. And and this will certainly benefit people with disabilities, because, a lot of work can be done from, from your home. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. So will will you close us out by sharing a little bit? Uh, how, how do we find Ruderman foundation? If we're looking to get involved or help out, how do we do that? And, and maybe a little bit about what we can look forward to maybe work coming down the pipeline.
1: Well, you can find us on, on our website at rudermanfoundation.org. Um, you know, where, on Twitter. I mean, I'm, I'm personally very accessible on Twitter. Um, you know, I can't deal with every request, but, you know, I, I believe, and I've written about this in the past that, that philanthropy should be very transparent and you should, you should be in, in touch with people who are in the field. Um, you know, I think what's next for us, um, I'm not sure. We, we still have a lot of work in Hollywood that we have not, put out yet, but, you know, we're waiting until this situation subsides to, to put it out. I think we've made, we will continue to make some progress there. Um, you know, as far as, you know, COVID-19, I mean, I think that, you know, white papers that are able to go beyond the disability community and are able to, um, get general society to start thinking differently. Um, I, that, that's the direction that I'm interested in going. I mean, it's like we work with the disability community and, and are part of the disability community. Um, but but I, when we engage in a project, I'm always looking to go beyond the community to reach the hearts and minds wow. of people who are not in the community. Now, having said that, our society is set up to look at disability as an issue of charity. And, you know... These are people who are less uh, fortunate and they need our help and they need our money and our support. And that's a mindset that everything that we're trying to do is try to change that mindset. Um, And the champions beyond people with disabilities are always people in industry and in entertainment and in, in athletics that have a personal connection. They have a child. They themselves have a disability. They have a sibling with a disability we have to move beyond that we have to move to people who just don't have that personal connection right away and realize that this is a civil rights issue and and if i would see one success it's the banding of the of the disability community together so you know people are not focused on their their single dis- disability
0: yes that's incredible i am excited to live in that world i hope it comes okay. soon <laughs> I'm ready to live in that world. <laughs> um, we yeah. appreciate it. We uh, appreciate very much the the work that you're doing and and the organizations that um, you're supporting and and all of the research and and paperwork that you're putting out because, like that that is what's going to create this better society that um, we all know needs to happen. Um, or we know that needs to happen. Um, But as far as being able to communicate that to everyone else and sort of get them on their hearts and minds too, I really love that and appreciate that. And really wanna thank you for the work that you're doing um, because we need it, our world needs it. Thank you for spending part of your day with us. We wanna give thanks to our network, Public House Media, and for our intro beats, Jason Barnes with Cybernetics. For our logo art, we want to remember Patrice. You can find his work at normalpersons.com.
2: Be sure to follow Disarming Disability on Facebook and Instagram. And lastly, be sure to check out our website, disarmingdisability.com, where you can find all 13 episodes of season one, links to resources, transcriptions, and discussion questions for each episode. And check out our blog, where we feature amazing disability advocates.